Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons. He also has ICBMs. What we don't know is whether he's actually capable of mating those two things together. The more time he has, the, the closer he's going to get. So I think the, the challenge is really to, to try to find some way to slow that down, derail it, prevent that. That's not something sanctions can help with. We're going to need U.S., Russia, and China to cooperate to oversee the North Koreans actually dismantling their own warheads and then provide some kind of uh, assurance to the rest of the world. I think it's probably safe to assume that you were a supporter of the Iran nuclear deal. Absolutely. And why? Because it bought us time. What we did was buy 10 years to try to work with our allies and partners in the region, to work with Russia, to, you know, try to influence Iran's behavior. You know, we got most of the things that we really needed. Laura Holgate served as U.S. representative to the Vienna Office of the United Nations and the International Atomic Energy Agency. Prior to that, Laura was the Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction, Terrorism, and Threat Reduction on President Obama's National Security Council. Laura is currently a Vice President at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a nonpartisan, nonprofit dedicated to reducing the risk posed by weapons of mass destruction. She is also a Senior Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. I recently had a chance to sit down with Laura to discuss her important work. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Laura, welcome. It is, uh, it is great to have you on the show, and it is great to see you again. Well, great to be with you, Michael. Laura, I want to begin with your career. 
you received your bachelor's degree in political science from Princeton, master's degree in political science from MIT. Uh, do I have those right? Yes, sir. When did you get interested in national security and why? And when did you get interested in the nuclear security issue that defined so much of your career? Well, it, it goes back pretty far. Um, part of it has to do with growing up as a daughter of an airline pilot in you know suburban Kansas City. So that gave me an access to the world outside my what my classmates might have had exposure to. So you got, you got to fly and all over so the place. So got to fly all over the place um, and uh, really. Which airline? TWA. Oh, okay. Back, you know, way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but flying everywhere. Um, but right? flying everywhere. Yeah. Um, and really. It, that instilled a little bit of wanderlust in me that suggested that whatever I did, I might want to have some kind of international angle. And then the the fall of my freshman year, the uh, made-for-TV movie The Day After uh, mm, was yeah. aired in 83. Yeah. Uh, and that, as you may recall, blows up Lawrence, Kansas, right. which is just spitting distance from where I grew up. And so... It was already dramatic enough. Uh, you know, rumor has it that President Reagan was affected, that his views on nuclear weapons were affected by that. But it hit even closer to home, almost, you know, literally to me, and really kind of galvanized my my interest. I was already kind of thinking I might want to be a Sovietologist. Uh, I was trying to take Russian class. I was so bad I got kicked out mm-hmm. after one semester. But I knew that the—and the campus issue— that year, you know, the, during my time in college was really the nuclear freeze movement, uh, disarmament, things like that. And so it, it really, that, that kind of resonated with me as, you know, a way that I might be able to contribute um, is to get involved in that somehow. And did you, while you're, while you're majoring in political science, are you also taking classes that give you, would allow you to get a technical understanding of these issues mm, or not? Not as much in my coursework, I confess. Uh, well, certainly not at Princeton. The, it was, you know, kind of much more international relations, political philosophy, uh, courses like that. But um, when I got to MIT, um, they they had what's now called the Security Studies Program. At the time, it was called the Defense and Arms Control Studies. And it was – it had – I mean, it was policy but with a very technical backbone. And so talking about the history of arms control, you know, you had to understand the difference between weapon systems um, – between counting rules for warheads versus delivery systems, um, talking about the unclassified aspects of how do you make a nuclear weapon? What's the nuclear fuel cycle? Why do we worry uh, from a proliferation and a policy perspective about these technical capabilities? And then I did my thesis on um, chemical weapons destruction uh, and the politics of that, but that drew me into some very technical aspects of you know, what technologies do you use? Why are different communities angry about them? And right, right, what are the pros and cons? Right, so right. you really can't touch the WMD business right. without, you know, being comfortable in a technical milieu, even if you're not trained. But I think a, one of the values, right, one of the values of your education is you're able to understand that, um, but you're also able to explain it to people who aren't experts, Right. You can oh, that's that's got to be the things, job. Make yeah. things simple without making them simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. Is 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 really hard to do, and and you you've got that skill, or at least I've I've seen that a hundred well, times. Well, that that makes me feel great to <laughs> get your vote of confidence in that. I do feel that it's part of my role. Laura, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here. So you moved up the ladder very fast. Your first service in government was halfway into the first term of the Clinton administration. 
in the Department of Defense. And by the late Obama administration, you are the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in Vienna and to the International Atomic Energy Agency. So very quick rise. And one of the things that young people, and we have many, many of our listeners are, are students and young professionals who like to see themselves in these jobs someday. So they always ask me, what's the secret to getting ahead? So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you, what advice would you have for young professionals about getting ahead in the national security world? I think one of the most important things is having good mentors and more than mentors, champions, people who won't just give you good advice, but will advocate for you with the system or the next level up of a boss, people who are willing to take a chance on you to, you know, take a stretch position to go a little bit further than what you've been doing, what you've demonstrated your capacity to do and to see more in you than you have had a chance to experience. And I've been blessed uh, all along my career with people who've been willing to, you know, take that chance on me to give me an opportunity to shine in a new way. And um, that's a huge value. And and you have to be open to being mentored, right? Well, that's that's the other half, right? And one of the best pieces of advice that I was given when I first, when I was a baby bureaucrat in the Pentagon was pick the general, not the war. And so you have to be looking for those mentors. You have to know, you know, who do you want to be your champion? And then how do you engage with them in a way that makes them want to champion you, but also where you can absorb their wisdom and their experience. And your willingness to listen to what they have to say, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because if you think you don't have anything to learn, then you're not going to learn anything. Absolutely. right? Right. So I know you're very proud of the mentoring you've done of young women and the the strides that women have made in in the national security field. Mm -hmm. But any particular advice to young women in, you know, what has long been an industry dominated by men? Well, I think that point is exactly part of the first advice is don't think that men can't be your mentors. Um, I mean, women mentors are important and critical and having role models where you can actually envision yourself in a senior role because you can see you've seen another woman or another person that, you know, relates to you in some way in those positions. But given that many of the senior positions are occupied by men, you need male mentors as well. I think the other thing that over the course of my career, I've seen it go from, you know, one or two women in a room to, you know, maybe 20 or 30 percent women in the room. And, you know, the sit room tables that you and I used to sit around, you know, there were lots of women around that room, including many times at the head of that table. Mm -hmm. Um, But being being ready to reach out sideways and mentor each other, uh, encourage each other to, you know, apply for that stretch job, to, you know, take a risk, uh, to offer feedback on presentation skills, um, different ways that women can mentor each other at the, you know, kind of same level. And, you know, as you rise, there's always going to be someone behind you. So reach out your hand behind, pull them forward. You're never going to be able to mentor your mentor. <laughs> you can't pay that back. So you got to pay it forward. Right. right. Laura, I want to um, switch gears a little bit to the issue you worked on when you served on President Obama's national security staff, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, right? CBRN. So I was hoping you can explain what each of those initials means for folks and then explain the, the threat that you see from each. All right, so we're doing CBRN 101. Yes, awesome. exactly. Okay. 
Um, EBRN for dummies. <laughs> well, I know there's no dummies <laughs> listening to this show. So chemical weapons are, you know, in some ways antique, but they've been around for a long time. And they work by interfering with the body's functions, uh, whether it's breathing or whether it's your nervous system or whether it's just your airways. And, you know, you and you have enough of the whatever it is and enough depends on what the nature of the agent is, it will overwhelm your body and, and you'll die. Some, sometimes, depending on if you can get treatment fast enough or if the dosage is light enough, you don't die. Sometimes there's long-term effects. Sometimes you recover completely. But And this is what Bashar al-Assad used on his own people? On his own people. Uh, what ISIS has used in the region. And then, you know, what we saw the Russians uh, using against British citizens in Salisbury most recently. So this is so, both, both nation states and, and individual groups and individual who groups. have access to this stuff. Right. Um, now, chemical weapons have been banned entirely as an entire class of weapon uh, since the late 80s. And so there is no legal chemical weapon. And chemical weapon is defined by intent, not by recipe. Mm. Anything. I mean, there's a lot being talked about with these Novichucks that the Russians used in in Salisbury to, to kill those people. And the fact that that is not listed in the Chemical Weapons Convention. But the Chemical Weapons Convention defines chemicals as, you, you know, any chemical used as a weapon. Right. So right, right, it's about right, intent, right. not, not yeah. the not okay, the chemistry. B. Biological weapons. So biological weapons operate as a living organism and how it interacts with the the human or the animal or the plant uh, that they might come in contact with. And so the typical way we think about it is disease, anthrax, smallpox, the, you know, flu. And Virus or bacteria? Either way. Fungus in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. There is a toxin thing that's kind of on the definitional edge between chem and bio because it's toxins are produced by, by animals, but they operate more in a chemistry as a chemical. So there's a debate about where toxins fall. Um, but anything that will make you sick, like systemically sick, as opposed to like having a reaction. Much more um, difficult to make a biological weapon than a chemical weapon or not? It all depends. I mean, biological weapon, it, well, it depends on, I think the issue is the weapon part. And neither of them are particularly good as weapons, which is why they both have treaties that ban them entirely. Because over so time, it's in the same camp as so it, chemical weapons. It's in the same camp as chemical weapons, although it lacks a verification mechanism. The kind of nice thing about bio is that things you do to get ready for a bio attack are many of the same things that you would do to be ready for flu season or to be worried about, you know, a measles outbreak or Ebola, a naturally occurring disease. I mean, you want good epidemiologists, you want to find out quick that there's a problem. You, you want to be able to vaccinate people quickly or treat them quickly. You want to be able to protect the, the materials that might be used to make those, to have good lab safety and good lab security so you don't, as you're working with these, either in research or treatment, that they don't make the problem worse. Those are going to be the same problems, whether you're talking about a malicious actor or whether you're talking about Mother Nature. The R. Radiological. So radiological is a bit of an outlier in this quartet because people tend to talk about it as a weapon of mass disruption rather than a weapon of mass destruction. Radiological weapons, by and large, do not kill people uh, unless you're unlucky enough to be near the explosive 
aspect of, say, a dirty not bomb. the radiation that kills it's you. Not it's not the radiation the that kills you. It's the C4. But it is scary. It is super expensive to clean up uh, and takes a long time. Uh, so there's massive economic uh, impacts. And it's just like, like the like the catchphrase says, it is very disruptive to normal life. And so there's been, you know, a lot of focus historically on the end part, which we'll come to, um, because those actually can kill large numbers of peoples very quickly <laughs> uh, and with very long-term consequences. Radiological is um, both much easier uh, because it's much more so you, the, you, you the just raw material. Get, just get something radioactive and is, pack it around C4 yes. and you got a radiological weapon. Exactly. And these radiological sources, radiological material is used for important beneficial purposes all over the world, in all kinds of realms. Uh, hospitals have it to purify your blood or to treat uh, a cancer. Um, industry has it to do special imaging on, say, airplane wings to make sure that they don't have any cracks uh, or, or you know, problems that way. Uh, they're used in the, in the petroleum industry to investigate oil wells. Uh, so they're everywhere and doing good things. But a lot of them go missing, Every year, the, I, the International Atomic Energy Agency has had reported to it thousands of radiological sources that have either been stolen or lost or, you know, just disappeared. And so it's much easier to get access to that. And I'm frankly quite surprised we haven't right. seen right. Uh, yeah. a radiological device. All right, and then device. the N, which is... Which the is N, the, the N. Now we're back to the yep, day after. Yep, yep. And uh, this has been your central focus. Yeah, you know, the raw material of nuclear weapons. And so that is uh, an actual nuclear device, you know, a critical critical mass, uh, uh, an explosion of the type that we saw in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, you know, the testing that we have all seen images of over the Pacific or, or the New Mexican desert. These are weapons that can kill massively. And certainly the weapons that states develop especially the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union, now Russia, have will kill millions and millions yeah. of people and yeah. leave, you know, giant swaths of territory. So your job at the White House was to make sure that the U.S. government was doing everything it could, right, to make sure that, that none of these kinds of attacks happened, right? Mm-hmm. So what was the key to you doing your job, and what's the key to the U.S. government being effective in protecting us from these pretty awful things? Well... To me, the key thing was being able to work effectively with international partners and with multilateral organizations. This is not a job that any one country, even the United States, can handle alone. So there's a lot of pieces that go into that ability to work internationally. One of them is credibility. People need to want to work with you. A second is expertise. Uh, the U.S. has that in spades. But it's one thing to have people who know how to build our weapons and keep them secure it's a different thing for those people to be able to interact effectively with other countries, other nationalities, other cultures, less technically capable uh, people and institutions. And so we needed to learn, and we did learn over the course of the 90s under the Nunn-Luger program and other kinds of cooperative activities how to work with other countries. So there's kind of two pieces to this, right? There's a supply and demand piece. Mm-hmm. So the supply piece is making sure that these materials don't get into the wrong hands, mm-hmm. and the demand piece 
is trying to find those people who want it, right, and make that's sure right. you deal with them. And that's what I think was a real shift during the time that you and I were in the administration is there was so much work to do on the supply side that that's where, you know, a lot of time, energy, expertise, money was focused. But I think it really, the the scales fell off of people's eyes with the ISIS use of chemical weapons and where we, for the first time, had a had a real you know, active terrorist outfit using weapons of mass destruction. And I will tell you, I got a lot more attention from the nuclear terrorist people in the CIA after ISIS than I did before. And so I think getting at the demand side, instead of just shrugging your shoulders and say, well, terrorists are undeterrable, to say, well, maybe they're not deterrable, but we have a lot of tools that we can use um, in that, some which we can talk about on this show and some which we can't. So that was why I was really supportive of the shift in the Pentagon from having the Strategic Command, our Nuclear Weapons Command, having responsibility for the WMD synchronization mission at the Pentagon, to the Special Operations Command. In, and that happened in 2016. Simplistically, all that Strategic Command has to do in their deterrence role is to sit there and look right, scary. Right, right, That's right. not fundamentally an activist thing. Right, right. If in SOCOM, they're finding bad guys and yep, so they figuring do. that out every day. That's what they do. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Laura Holgate. Do you hear that? That's a quadcopter built by STEM students competing in an annual technology challenge. Just one of the Raytheon-sponsored initiatives designed to help young people pursue sustainable STEM careers. Every day, Raytheon empowers students, supports teachers, and harnesses the strength of key partnerships. Together, we're inspiring the next generation of innovators. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. So, Laura, I want to switch now to your time as the ambassador to the U.N. in Vienna and as the ambassador to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And so I want to start by talking about North Korea. A couple of questions. Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons. We know that. He's tested them successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has ICBMs capable of delivering something to the continental United States. What we don't know is whether he's actually capable of mating those two things together, Right. Um, He's had a lot of time to work on it. What's your assessment of where he is in that capability? Oof. I don't think, I certainly don't know. It's something that he's, the more time he has, the the closer he's going to get. So I think the the challenge is really to, to try to find some way to slow that down, derail it, prevent that. That's not something sanctions can help with. I mean, that made it, that you're talking about a technical knowledge right, right. and a, frankly, for the first few, an artisanal skill set um, that there's going to be trial and error and people just have to figure that out. The more time they have, the more time they have to make errors and to learn, you know, how not to make those errors. And so to me, that that potential does contribute to the urgency of finding some large scale solution that goes well beyond the sanctions. So what's your perspective on the Trump administration's approach to this problem? Well, I think talking is good. I I think it's going to be critical, especially given the decision-making style of these two particular leaders. It's hard to imagine that anyone other than them talking to each other are going to be able to reach an agreement or an understanding that their bureaucracies will have confidence in implementing. The 
the challenge is, you know, does the Trump administration really have a game plan other than give it all up? Uh, I think that's not going to be the winning opening proposition. And I think it's got to be a very carefully calibrated set of of gives and takes on each side that are similar in scale and degree of difficulty for so each they, government. So they do something. They do something that's we, kind of medium, medium hard. And we do something that's kind of medium hard, but that they're calibrated also that, that they are similarly reversible if the other side doesn't do it or if the next step doesn't happen. And so that's that takes a lot of time and energy. And I don't have that kind of visibility into what's going on. Right. And it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be happening. It doesn't right? seem, it to, does be happening. seem to be happening. And right. the very first things that were said last year about, you know, oh, we'll just fly the nuclear weapons out of North Korea or we'll just drive a drive a ship up and load everything on and, and take it away. I mean, that suggested that there wasn't a lot of serious thought. <laughs> and the first thing that has to happen is a declaration, right? The Absolutely. first thing that has to happen is North Korea saying, here's everything we have. Why is that so important? Because you, if you don't know what they have, then you can't gauge what you've destroyed uh, as a percentage of what they had. You don't know how, even if you do start to do some destruction or they start to do some destruction, even if, you know, no matter how well uh, observed that destruction is, you don't know if it's 5% or 50% or 95%. And so that nobody expects those initial declarations to be perfect. So it also gives you a basis to validate those declarations, uh, to go in and say, yes, okay, you said you had that kind of facility here. We see that. Oh, but what's this over here? And so you have to have not just a declaration, but a validated declaration right. and an effort to. So that's really important, right? So that's, yes. that's not only here's everything I have, but IAEA come in and validate my, my, that's right. my declaration. Or maybe somebody else. And I think this is an interesting point. There is absolutely going to have to be a role for the IAEA. But when you start talking about warheads, the IAEA does not have the authority uh, to work on nuclear warheads. Um, and the missiles as well. And, nor the missiles, exactly. And so we're going to have to come up with some kind of a very interesting verification mechanism so that the knowledge of how do you make a warhead does not go beyond countries that already know how to do that. So the IAEA just deals with the fissile material. They deal with the material. Um, and the Nuclear uh, Nonproliferation Treaty means it is illegal for any citizen not of a weapon state, to know how do you make a weapon. And so one of the things that NTI talks about is we're, we're really going to need so the a, nuclear threat initiative, the nuclear threat initiative, initiative vice president of, yes. where, I, where I now work. Um, we're doing some work on, you know, what might, what tools might con- contribute to disarmament uh, in North Korea if that were a decision to be made. And one of them is we're going to need U.S., Russia, and China to cooperate to oversee the North Koreans actually dismantling their own warheads and then provide some kind of a, of a uh, assurance to the rest of the world yeah. that, in fact, that was done. Um, so the other value, Laura, of the declaration is it tests the North Koreans. Mm-hmm. Did they put everything on that declaration that we know they have, right? right. So it's a real test about whether they're serious about about getting rid of it all or whether they're, they want to hide some, right? Absolutely. And protect it for the future. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you if, if you think President Trump has a point that the Obama administration did not do enough on North Korea. 
well. We certainly do you, didn't... A, do you think that's a fair criticism on his part? Well, if you gauge by meetings in the sit room, <laughs> no. Um, but I also think, I mean, this is this is the king of hard problems, and where the the whole point of Korean leaders was to create an indigenous nuclear weapons program, and they largely succeeded. A lot of what they need, they can make themselves. So there's a limit to how much sanctions can help. Um, uh, and there's there was also, I think, there, there has been a fallacy, and I don't think we had that, cons- that fallacy in, in the Obama administration, but that China can somehow flip a switch. And exactly. certainly China's influential, exactly. but they are not dispositive. Uh, when it comes to they, they were quite frankly decisions. just as much, just as frustrated with the North Koreans as at we times, were, right? yes, that they couldn't that they could not influence. That's right, and so the tools of influence are just were are just so limited. You know, we can rerun history and point out earlier agreements with North Korea that might have, you know, had they been you know observed by both sides, had the U.S. you know stuck with some of its pledges, you know, had other things gone differently. Before they had a significant amount of weapons usable material where this could have been headed off. But those those opportunities are gone. So my own view is that Kim Jong-un didn't come to the table because he was being squeezed by sanctions. He came to the table because he thought his strategic weapons program was far enough along Mm -hmm. that it was time to talk about to see what he could get for it. I agree. That's what I think. And you know what's even more worrying about that is he if he's decided he has enough, but. It appears from open sources that he's continuing to make more plutonium, more highly enriched uranium. That's the only government in the world that I actually worry about actively deciding to sell that material to somebody else. And so to me, the real question has always been, how much is enough? And so in some ways, that means if he's decided is if I agree with your analysis that he's got enough and now has that now raised the risk of sales to rogue states or non-state actors. And and, and we should note that everything else he ever developed on the weapons side, he has sold. Yes. And we know that um, he was involved in helping the Syrians um, with the technology necessary to uh, make fissile material. Absolutely. So um, that is a worrisome thing. So do you believe that, that he will ultimately, that he is willing to negotiate away everything or not what's just your sense i know there's no answer to it but yeah what's your sense well he won't negotiate away everything and the first clip i'm confident of that this is going to be a long a much longer engagement um than i think people initially had hoped and so if there is in fact something and complicated to be done, based on everything we just talked about extremely complicated and let's not leave off the chem and bio because we can't write that threat off until we've dealt with all of those issues and the, and the missiles obviously alongside so this is extremely complicated. It's going to have to be very carefully synchronized. And I think right now, I think he would be foolish to agree to give up all of his nuclear weapons. I think there's trust that has to be built. Not trust. There's confidence. There's a back and forth that needs to be had before they're willing to really go and given, further. And given how complicated this is, it's not something that he, that Kim Jong-un and President Trump, can sit and negotiate, right? They can set some parameters and build the trust, but it's real. This is this is complicated, detailed stuff that has to be worked by people who know what they're doing. Exactly. On both sides. On both sides. On both sides. And the Koreans have been preparing for this negotiation for decades. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure the same is true for the U.S. team. So, Laura, I want to ask you now the same sort of questions on Iran that I asked on North Korea, right? 
And I guess the place to start is, I think it's probably safe to assume that you were a supporter of the Iran nuclear deal. Absolutely. And why? Because it bought us time. It was never going to be the 100% all-inclusive solution to all of the challenges of Iran. But everything that we have a problem with in terms of Iran's behavior, whether it's mischief-making in the region, whether it's support of terrorists, whether it's you know, holding U.S. person, you know, U.S. persons is made harder if Iran has a nuclear weapon. And so getting a getting to a point where they were not on a path to that nuclear weapon was critical to solving those issues. And there's no doubt in my mind that the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, succeeded in blocking all of the possible paths uh, to a weapon and that the IAEA was effectively over, overseeing the implementation of that, confirming that the Iranians were doing the things that they were doing, that they had intended to do, that they were committed to do. And there have been no instances in which the IAEA found you know, any lack of uh, compliance. And as far uh, as we know, the Iranians Iran. are still living up to the deal. That's right. But that's not to say that you, you know, pat yourself on the back and go home. What that does is it creates space to work on the broader issues, which are mainly not about nuclear weapons. And so what we what we did was buy 10 years to try to work with our allies and partners in the region, to work with Russia, to, uh, you know, try to influence Iran's behavior so that at the end of that 10 years, as, you know, some of the constraints fell off, although they never all fell off, it's important to remind everybody, some some of the aspects uh, fell off of the that Iran's interests in getting either a nuclear weapon or a one step away from a nuclear weapon had changed. Right. And so right. that's the right. the thing to be right. looking for there. Right. So there's two critiques by the folks who think this was a bad thing. Right. Mm-hmm. One critique was that you could have gotten more on the nuclear front. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other critique is you didn't include all of the regional misbehavior, right? You should have done a one big package. What's mm-hmm. your response to both of those things? Well, I mean, I, it's so easy to second guess a negotiation if you weren't in the room. I wasn't in the room. I was not one of the negotiators, so I wasn't there. But I think the deal, you know, we got most of the things that we really needed. And I'm sure there are people who could go back and look at, you know, in 50 years, whatever, when they're foia and released the negotiating instructions and the difference between that and, you know, watching the drafts evolve and so on. That'll be a fascinating uh, conversation. But I suspect that that analysis would show that we did not shift that much uh, from our goals to what we achieved. Because the goal from the beginning had to be, you know, moving that, you know, that timeline in which, you know, when we started this conversation – the, the expectation was that Iran could make enough weapons for nuclear material within a couple months. Right. And we, we shifted were. that we were. Yep. to a year yep. and we made that last for 10 years. Yeah. And so that was the goal from the get from the beginning. And the Iranians were negotiating to that goal as well as they were doing the calculations. You know, as Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz is sitting there with his Iranian counterpart, you know, doing math on the back of a of a cocktail napkin it was very clear that this was the U.S. goal is, you know, turn two months to a year and then make it last for at least 10. And that 
once you settled that, then it was a matter of how do you get there. So on the on the critique on you didn't include the regional misbehavior. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that was, you know, in some ways that was the Iranian bottom line is there was not going to be a discussion about anything other than nuclear. And so but I actually think that wasn't an irrational position for them or for us, because if you go back to what I said initially, you really can't get at the rest of that regional bad behavior if you're constantly worried that Iran is going to be getting a weapon alongside. Right. You have to get the weapon, the nuclear program, you know, in a box before you can really work on the rest of the I problems. Think the, I think the other piece of it, right, was this was actually a case where the sanctions did drive them mm-hmm. to the negotiating table and they were international sanctions. That's right. And the whole world was behind them. Right. And that was about the nuclear issue. It wasn't about anything else. So we couldn't have brought Russia and China and others along with us if we had broadened it out. I think right? that's I think that's fair. Although it's important to point, point out there are sanctions on missile yep. work as well. But most of the sanctions. But were most on of the, the sanctions yeah. were on the nuclear, and we had you know strong support from other countries that that made that work, and and we used a lot of political and diplomatic energy to create yeah. that support and maintain it yeah. over time. Laura, there was just a report from a private group looking at commercial imagery saying that the Saudis are beginning to produce their own ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. And given that missiles are the best way to deliver nuclear weapons, are you concerned about the Saudis being interested at some point, at some time, in nuclear weapons? Yes, I am concerned about that. And I think this, I mean, we should all have been concerned because uh, the Crown Prince has been pretty clear. Um, and what what I found interesting is that it used to be Prince Turkey when he was, you know, not necessarily in a, in a position of influence, go around saying, oh, you know, we might want nuclear weapons. And, you know, f- five, ten years ago, I would have said, well, that's just that's Prince Turkey saying we're worried we need a hug. That wasn't to be taken literally. I think we have to take the crown prince at his word when he says if Iran gets the capability to make nuclear weapons, so will we. And what is frightening about that, what's chilling about that is two things. First of all, that the crown prince seems not to understand that he is under an international treaty commitment on the non-proliferation treaty not to do that and that he would be breaking that treaty, which would put him in the company of North Korea, which I think is not where Saudi Arabia wants to be. Mm-hmm. The second thing I find chilling about it is no one in the U.S. government at a senior level stood up and said, hey, guy, that's not OK. Our, our cooperation with you, our relationship with you is based on your being a member in good standing of the international community. And if you take that step, you're going to be North Korea and you are not going to be a member in good standing in the international community, not just among the nuclear nerds, but collectively. And so the fact that there has not been more pushback, not just from the United States, but from other governments against that very bald statement uh, by the Crown Prince, I find shocking. Laura, it has been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. I think we could like talk all day, but it's been fantastic to see you. Well, great to see you too, Michael, and uh, really fun to talk to you today. Fantastic. That was Laura Holgate. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.